1: Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick
0: Real
2: love is calling listen Truth opens up your eyes mercy is for you every sunrise any of us can get stuck in the past and miss what God is doing now And let me tell you how this relates to us. It relates to us individually, and it relates to us corporately as a church. And let me also say this. It has to do with memories that are not only bad memories, but also good memories. That if we get stuck there, it can blind us and rob us of seeing what God is doing now. This
1: is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Ezra. Do you have fond memories of a time you wish you could return to? Or perhaps you have some scars in your past that just won't fade. Whatever the case, in today's message, Pastor Gary encourages us that we should never let the past blind us to the new work God is doing now. The captives who returned to Israel remember the temple in its former glory. So when the new one was built, they didn't rejoice. Whatever your past, you know that God isn't finished yet. He's only just begun. And you can't imagine the plan he has for you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Ezra chapter 3 for part 1 of today's message titled, Don't Let Yesterday Rob You of Today. Door, and
2: Ezra 3 in the Old Testament is where we are as we make our way in a journey through the Bible entirely. We're here in Ezra 3. Let me give a little bit of an introduction to bring you up to speed where we are, and then we'll read a little bit from the end of chapter 3, and we'll dig out the verses together. But as far as an introduction, just so everybody understands what is happening here, the Bible says, in general, the Bible says that God disciplines those whom he loves. The Bible is specific about that, too. And what we see happening here in recent history for the Jews is that God is disciplining them because he loves them. For the 400 years of the monarchy, the Jewish people were in rebellion against God. They were living in idolatry and immorality, and because God loved his people, he disciplined them by using the Babylonians as the rod of his discipline. God calls Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, to come to besiege the city of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar does, and he takes tens of thousands of Jews as captives and deports them 900 miles to ancient Babylon, which is today in modern Iraq. The Jews will spend 70 years there. God predetermined the time. He told them in advance through the prophet Jeremiah, it'll be 70 years for a good time out so that you all can understand your rebellious ways and how much I love you. And they would be purged of idolatry and the desire to have an earthly king. When they would come back after 70 years, Israel will never again be steeped in idolatry. Israel will never again have a monarchy where they will serve a king. Even today, there's not a monarchy form of government. It's a democracy with a president and a prime minister. And so Israel will be purged of different things as a result of the 70 years. They will come back to Jerusalem again by God's wonderful, gracious hand. After the 70 years had been completed, God puts it on the heart of another king, Cyrus, king of Persia, who has defeated the Babylonians to proclaim an edict that as many Jews who want to may go back home to their homeland. Now, unfortunately, most stay in Babylon. Over the 70 years, they've established lives, livelihoods, had families. They're comfortable in Babylon. By the way, that's a commentary. We have to be careful never to get comfortable in our culture. We have to transform our culture with the good news of Jesus Christ. We can't allow the culture to transform us. And so... Unfortunately, most of them were comfortable right where they were, and only a small, relatively speaking, a small minority went back to Jerusalem. About 50,000 will return. But compared to the many who were taken into exile, a very small number. And when the 50,000 return, they return to rubble. The city is in ruins. The temple has been destroyed because Nebuchadnezzar, 70 years earlier, had completely destroyed the city. And so they have to rebuild their lives, rebuild their city, rebuild the temple. What did they do well? What are the things they didn't do so well as they built and as they relocated and reestablished their lives here? So we're going through these books in a series I've entitled, Ever-Changing, Never-Changing, because as you know, in life, things are always changing. But on the other hand, there will be some things that will never change, and we're committed to some things never changing, the core values and just the biblical foundation upon which... Our church was founded and continues to operate. So far, we've looked into the chapters of Ezra. Chapter 1, principle that we learned from chapter 1, that God has a providential plan for our lives. In chapter 2, we noted how God moved the hearts of people to go. He moved the hearts of people to give. He moved the hearts of people to get involved. And those who returned to Jerusalem were the ones that, who responded to that move of God in their heart. We also looked from chapter 3 about how we will always keep Jesus the priority, and we will always keep worship the practice. Now, we left off at the end of chapter 3 with the Jewish people laying the foundation of the temple of God. Again, because it had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar 70 years earlier, they have to rebuild the whole temple. They lay the foundation, and when they do... There is great celebration and worship. That was number six on our list. But I want us to go right to that spot where we left off, verse 10 of chapter 3. And I want you to see it again with me. And it will lead into the one point I want to share today as well. So chapter 3 of Ezra, verse 10. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, Took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord. He is good, his love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Notice verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. So you have to, try to imagine this mixture of weeping eh, and rejoicing yeah you know and it's happening in the same crowd and it's heard far away so this is loud this is noisy it is an ugly sound okay pretty much like going to a country music concert that's my view of the whole thing that's what I think all right don't you know, don't get upset, don't send me emails, but it's, it's like a Rascal Flats concert going on right here, and there's, oh, this is great, oh, this is terrible, And just that why? anyway, you get the idea, and so here they are, this mixture here of this sound, and it's just noise, the Bible says, it's just noise, and we're going to talk about why two groups reacted in these two different ways. So among the people who returned to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity are two groups, you have one group that is the older group and I use that term, you know, carefully because I'm mindful of different ages in our own congregation but just in terms of this story, okay? You have a group that was over 70 and the group that was over 70 remembers life before captivity. Cuz remember, 70 years of captivity they're sent to Babylon. So those who are returning who are over 70, they remember life before captivity but you have a whole nother group in this story they are under 70 and all they've ever known is life in babylon because they were born during the 70 years of captivity so you have two different groups with two different perspectives about what is going on at this moment you have an older group over 70 you have a younger group under 70 the older group remembers life before captivity The younger group only has known life in captivity. The older group is returning to Jerusalem. They remember the temple, and they remember how splendid it was that Solomon built, how glorious it was. The younger group, under 70, they'd never even seen the temple, let alone worshipped in it. The older group Now probably 75, 80, 90, maybe there's even a few centenarians in the group who have graced the label of Smucker's Jam, I don't know, but you have at least a group over 70 who were young kids when they were deported to Babylon, who remember life as it was, the good old days, so to speak. And you have the younger crowd, under 70, and all they know is the present moment, and so the younger crowd is enthusiastic because they see this new day. This is a wonderful thing. We're laying the cornerstone of the foundation here of the Lord's temple. This is a great day. This is a wonderful day. While the older crowd, because they remember life before captivity, they're looking at the laying of the cornerstone and they're sad. They are weeping with sorrow because they are focused on the good old days younger crowd rejoicing with singing because they're focused on what god is doing today and what god is doing now now this is not a clash of the senior adults versus the young adults all right that's not what is happening in this story because remember the line of delineation is 70 It was 70 years of captivity. So those over 70 have a very different perspective from those under 70. But you could be in the crowd 75 years old. And remember as a 5-year-old what life was like before captivity. And you could be 69 in the crowd and not have any idea whatsoever about life in Jerusalem beforehand. So you could be 75 and 69 and have two totally different views of what is going on here. So it's not, you know, the senior adults versus young adults in their 20s. I mean, it's anybody under 70 has never experienced life in Jerusalem, never known the temple of God, never known the city of Jerusalem. They're coming back here wide-eyed and enthusiastic. The older crowd, on the other hand, they're bemoaning the good old days. And they are weeping, and they are mourning for life as it used to be. So this is not a clash of generations. This is a clash of interpretations. Hear me on this, or you'll miss the story. This is a clash of interpretations. This is the difference between one group that interprets the events in terms of what God has done. There's another group that is interpreting the events in terms of what God is doing. There is one group who is interpreting things in terms of the rearview mirror, and they're depressed about days gone by. The other group is interpreting things looking forward, and they're excited about the days now. So it is a matter of interpretation. Life experience has caused them to look at the events through their own lens. And the under 70 crowd, they're just excited for a new day and to be back here in the land that they've never even lived in before. The older crowd, on the other hand, not so enthusiastic because they remember life before captivity. And as a result, when they lay the cornerstone, there's weeping and rejoicing at the same time. Look again at verse 13 because it describes the scene here. Very clearly in verse 13 it says, No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. So you have this admixture, okay? You have this brackish clash between weeping and rejoicing. I mean, I, you know, growing up, I did a lot of fishing on the Whitehall River by Annapolis, and it was kind of a place where it was kind of brackish water, you know, where fresh water meets salt water, and there you have this collision and it's neither really fresh nor is it salty. It's just kind of a mixture. That's what you have going on here. It's brackish It's a Brockish sound because you have this mixture of weeping. People are sobbing. At the same time, people are rejoicing here, and it is a clash of interpretation. There wasn't anything harmonious or unified or beautiful about this sound. It was a complete lack of a unified perspective where one group was weeping about the good old days and one group was rejoicing about the good new days. And here's the takeaway from this story. It's number seven on our list. We must not let memories of the past rob us of seeing what God is doing in the present. We must not let memories of the past rob us of seeing what God is doing in the present. G. Campbell Morgan wrote in his commentary about this story. He said, quote this, there was a danger in their weeping. The backward look which discounts present activity is always a peril. Regrets over the past, which paralyze work in the present, are always wrong. Moreover, all such regrets, as in this case, are in danger of blinding the eyes to the true value and significance of the present. End quote. In other words, any of us can get stuck in the past and miss what God is doing now. And let me tell you how this relates to us. It relates to us individually, and it relates to us corporately as a church. And let me also say this. It has to do with memories that are not only bad memories, but also good memories. That if we get stuck there, it can blind us and rob us of seeing what God is doing now. So let me just address for the moment how this relates to us individual on a personal level. And when we think about memories and how those things can rob us of seeing what God is doing now, let me first start with the idea of bad memories. Because, you know, bad memories can cheat us. They can rob us from seeing the moment in the present tense and what God is doing today. Now, bad memories usually come in one of three ways or a combination of these three ways. First is through tragedy. When tragedy strikes, it obviously creates a lasting bad memory. Tragedy has a way of, in a sense, causing time to stop. You know people, or perhaps you are someone who has experienced a deep tragedy in your life, and it was like time stood still. And now as a result, most of the things in your life are measured by that one tragic event. And I don't say that to shame anybody. I say that with compassion. I honestly have not experienced much tragedy in my life. I'm thankful for that. But in the course of 25 years, I've ministered to enough people that I've kind of learned, at least in part, from your tragic events, just how people deal with tragedy. And one thing I've come to understand is that a tragedy changes your life. It will permanently change your life. Whoever said, time heals all wounds was never wounded, okay? Because time by itself just does not make everything go away and make everything better. A tragic event causes a permanent change in your life. And what we need to do is to offer compassion to people who are in a place where that memory has now shaped everything else about the present, and we need to have compassion for them, and we need to pray for them, That over time, not that time itself heals all wounds, but that over time, God in His grace will give people coping mechanisms or the ability to manage their grief or their tragedy in a way that will help them still to see what God is doing in a good way now. Okay, Because in general, folks, this is important for us to all understand, in general, we need to build on the good past. We need to give to God the bad past, and we need to pray that we always have eyes to see what he's doing now so that we don't miss his goodness in the present day. And as it relates to our bad past and tragedies and the things that happen in our lives, we need for those people, we need God's grace to give them the ability to cope. That's what happens. You don't ever get over it, but you become over time by the grace of God able to cope and able to manage it. This is the kind of grace, for example, that a spouse needs who has been betrayed by another spouse in the marriage, and you need the grace of God to help you manage the betrayal in a way that you can learn to trust again. This is the kind of grace that parents need when they lose one of their children, one of their children dies, and they need the grace of God to help them manage their own grief while still loving and being engaged with their living children it's hard and those kind of memories then if we're not careful to grow in the grace of God to help manage those things they can then rob us of seeing what God is doing now the same thing is true not only of tragedy that shapes our memories but also offenses can shape our memories The people who wrong us, the people who harm us, the people who hurt us in some way, those kind of offenses can also create bad memories. And here's what begins to happen. People who have been offended, and by the way, in case you've never been offended, that only means you haven't lived long enough, all right? We all are going to offend and be offended, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Offenses are a part of life. What do we do with those things? Because the tragedy is that many people have wasted an inordinate amount of their lives rehearsing and rehashing the offenses. That were committed against them. And it robs them of what God is doing today. They can't see anything good of the Lord in today's terms or looking forward to tomorrow because they're stuck rehearsing something of the past that was done against them. When you look into the Gospels, you can see a clear case of this in the incident of Herodias and her husband, King Herod. John the Baptist confronted Herod and Herodias because they were living in sin. Herod stole his brother's wife, Herodias, and married her, and John the Baptist confronted them. You, King Herod, and Herodias are living in sin. This is not right. And the Bible says, and here's the term that it uses, Herodias, because she didn't like the confrontation of the truth from John the Baptist. The Bible says that Herodias, listen to this, nursed a grudge. You get that picture? Nursing a grudge. You know, tenderly treating that grudge in a way that it was growing in her heart. And in her life. And it says she nursed a grudge and she wanted to kill John the Baptist. And when there was an opportune moment, she took advantage of it. And she asked Herod, her husband, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And he did. He appeased her. Cut off John the Baptist's head, gave it to her as a gift. All because she nursed a grudge. Okay? Instead of responding to the truth in that case, that wasn't like an offense. That was just confronted with the truth. But nevertheless, when we don't like what somebody says or does towards us and we nurse that, it has detrimental and devastating consequences. Hebrews twelve fifteen says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up, causes trouble... And defiles many. You know what that verse means? It means if we give place to bitterness in our heart, if we allow it to grow and to fester, we rehearse, we rehash that thing that was done to us, we end up defiling many because our bitterness spills over to other people and other people don't want to be around you. And then you become isolated, and then you get angry at the people who feel like they, that what happened to my real friends? I'm going through this. They don't want to be near you because you've allowed bitterness to fester up, grow, and spill over, and you've defiled other people around you. Here's the key to getting over offenses and mistreatment and hurts. The Bible calls us to forgive those who have offended us. And the Bible says, forgive as Christ has forgiven us. In other words, When we stop long enough to recognize all that God has forgiven ourselves of in terms of our offenses against him, it'll go a long way to being able to forgive those who have wronged us. God says, forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. And it is a process. And sometimes it takes a long period of time to work through forgiveness. But it is so essential because, please understand, sometimes people think that when the idea of forgiveness is taught, that if I forgive somebody, that it's going to somehow validate their offense against me. They're going to think that what they did was okay to me. If I forgive them, no, 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 that's not true. Forgiveness does not mean that all of a sudden what they did to you was okay. Forgiveness means that you no longer give that someone the power to hold you captive to what they did.
1: Oh. Throughout this Old Testament book, Ezra reminds the Israelites that they are God's people and that God has not forgotten them. We hope that listening to Cornerstone Connection also reminds you that God has not forgotten you and that you belong to him. If you'd like to learn more about Cornerstone Connection or hear more teachings by Pastor Gary, we have a few ways to do that. One way is downloading our mobile app or you can subscribe to the Cornerstone Connection podcast. If you look online at cornerstoneconnection.cc, you'll also find additional messages as well as companion resources that offer a deeper look into Pastor Gary's studies. You mean a lot to us here at Cornerstone Connection, and we'd love to hear from you. Our number is 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. Cornerstone Connection comes to you as a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We'd love to meet you in person, so come see us Sundays at 30, 10 or 11.45 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. For our time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today, but join us again for more from God's Word, right here on Cornerstone Connection.
0: They
2: say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know, you're not alone.